We're going to dive into uh, part two of our sermon series, Under the Influence. Um, if you didn't, if you weren't here last Sunday and you missed last Sunday's sermon, please go on there. That's the sermon that kind of teed up this whole series. But we're talking about the the concept of being under the influence, okay? So I want to start with a question. How many of you are test lovers? How many of you like taking tests? Anybody like taking tests? Couple. Oh, Bryson. I was going to say a couple nerds in the house, but not Bryson. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they're test test taking is not like always that fun, right? We don't really like to be tested usually most of the time, but I will tell you one test that none of us wants to take. I'm going to give you one test that nobody wants to take. You might recognize this test. It looks a little something like this. Anybody ever seen anybody being tested like this? This is what's called. Okay. You can take that off. This is what's called a field sobriety test, a field sobriety test. It looked like that person was drunking the field or, or was failing. He was drunking. He was failing because he was drunking. Um, the field sobriety test. Um, it, 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 it tests you to determine whether or not you were driving under the influence, right? And so the way that it tests to, to determine whether you're under the influence is it tries to determine if there are symptoms of you being under the influence. Let's get some, let's get some congregation participation here. What are some of the symptoms? What are some of the signs? What would be some of the evidence that somebody might be under the influence? Just shout it out. Speech, slurred speech. Okay, good. What else? Smell, smell, good. What else? Walking, staggering, walking, right. Anything else? If you're online, put it on the, in the chat. Anybody else? Anything else? Yeah, those are the kind of, those are the kind of things. If somebody's got glassy eyes, you know what I mean? You know, usually, I mean, there are these specific pieces of evidence, but a lot of times you can kind of intuitively tell if somebody is just a little bit under the influence. There's a video going around on Instagram right now where there's a young woman who is at a club and she is trying to order four Sambucas. I don't know if I'm the only person that's seen this video, but she's going, and I'm not even sure what Sambucas are. It's something. It's, it sounds strong to me. But she's like, four Sambucas. And the person behind the bar keeps saying, what? Four Sambucas, she keeps saying, right? And finally, you discover in the video before she does that she's not at the bar. She's at the DJ booth. She's trying to get her four Sambucas, right? There's a lot of evidence that she is under the influence. But we're not going to spend the next several weeks talking about uh, drug and alcohol. We're going to be talking about what it looks like when our life is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What is that? What is the evidence of that? What are the symptoms of a life lived under the influence? There's a scripture that makes this analogy, and this is kind of our anchor scripture. This is our anchor verse for this series where this compa uh, comparison contrast is made by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, where he says, do not get drunk with wine which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is saying like, don't be under the influence of controlled substances because that leads to recklessness. I want you to be filled, I want you to be filled, overflowing with a, with a life under the influence. So I want to preach for just a few moments today on the topic the evidence of love. The evidence of love. Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to come before you 
and to really draw out from your word what you would have to show us. We pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would um, just descend upon us in this place, that we would uh, experience the power of your spirit in our own hearts. Father, I pray that you would do the work in our hearts today as I preach. Um, fill my mouth with the words that you would have me say and open our ears to the words that you would have us hear. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, transform our hearts. Uh, I pray, Lord God, that you would draw out anything that is not to be there, any bitterness or unforgiveness, any distraction, any fear, anxiety, any sin that is lurking in the depths of our, of our heart. We pray that you would cleanse it and open our hearts to receive your word today. Um, let it transform us. Let it change us. Let it grow us. We thank you for this and we praise you for this in Jesus name. Amen. 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 So the morning after the night of my high school graduation, I got a call. Well, I heard my dad tell me that there was somebody on the phone. Uh, and this is, this is not what you want to hear any day, but you definitely don't want to hear it the morning after the night that you graduated from high school. Okay, here's what I heard my dad say. Hey, Brent. He sounded just like that. He had a little bit of bass in his voice. Hey, Brent. He said, the police are on the phone and they would like to speak with you. This is the morning after the night of my high school graduation. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now. Now, first of all, this was a long time ago, people. <laughs> under the blood. Somebody say, under the blood. The name of Jesus washes us. So, so... <laughs> so I wake up and I hear the police are on the phone and they want to speak to you. Now I thought in that moment, I thought I knew exactly what they were um, talking about. I thought I knew what was going on because the night before I had been involved in something that I thought may have triggered this phone call. Um, the night before uh, I had been at a party with a group of, you know, men and women, young men and women kids. We were just kids. Um, right after the graduation and we were at this big party out in Earth City. Anybody know where Earth City is? It was like abandoned countryside back then. There were cows walking around and we would go out there because nobody else was out there. So that's where we would go and we were all at this big party. And then this kind of ruckus kind of kicked up at this party. And my friends and I said, you know, let's get out of here. So we got in our car and we left the party. Now, here's what I thought the police were calling about. And I'm going to try to put this delicately. But a group of us, about 25 young men and women, decided that it would be a really good idea to go to the apartment complex at Dorset and 270, climb the fence to the pool, and cool ourselves off on a hot summer night in the pool of the apartment complex. This was a clothing optional kind of event. That This was a, trying to put this tenderly, but, but there were a bunch of kids in the pool in various states of dress and undress. And we're in the pool and we hear the police coming. Man, I, I, I shouldn't have even started this story actually. I was like, Shh, yeah, can we, can we rewind the tape? Um, the police are coming. We hear the sirens. We all grab our stuff, jump out, get in our cars and leave. And then I went home. So when my dad said the next morning, the police are on the phone and they want to see you, they want to talk to you. I thought, well, that's it. They, they, they got my license plate or something. Somehow or other, we got busted. So they, they gave me two options. Number one, I could go turn myself in. Or number two, 
free ride. They would come and just pick me up and escort me personally to St. Louis County Jail. So I said, I'll, I'll just go turn myself in. The reason I made that decision is because we were also having a family reunion that day and a graduation party for me. So we had a, about a hundred of my family already at the house. I thought it might be best for me to leave rather than have them come. And so I go and I meet the police officer and I'm, I'm prepared to turn myself in. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm busted. You know, there's just no, I'm busted. They probably got my plate. So I came to him and I was, you know, pretty humbled by the whole situation. And after he reads me my rights and puts me, you know, arrests me and, and puts me in his car, he says something that really surprised me. He said, man, I just can't believe you guys would do that. And I thought, well, I mean, what's that hard to believe? Is it that hard to believe? Really? It's hot. You know, I mean, uh, and then he said, you guys ruined that man's livelihood. And I was like, excuse me? He said, yeah, y'all ruined that man's livelihood. And I'm thinking, swimming at the apartment complex is not ruining somebody's livelihood. I don't, I don't, I can't make the connection. What I did not know is that when we left the party at Earth City, and there was a little ruckus going on at that party at Earth City, and we left, what I did not know is that the people who remained at the party decided to go crazy. They broke into a moving truck, pushed the moving truck into a lake, pulled all the contents out of the moving truck and burnt it. Okay? This was not, this was a felony. Alright? So when the police arrived at the parking lot in Earth City, let me tell you what they found. Because another thing that I didn't realize is that I had been carrying a 3 by 5 index card in my pocket from graduation that told me where to stand, where to sit, and it had my name on it. Brent Rome. So when the police arrived at the scene of the crime, they find a truck in a lake, they find a pile of personal property burning on the parking lot, they find a parking lot strewn with beer bottles and cigarette butts, and they find a 3 by 5 index card that says in bold black letters, Brent Rome. There was some evidence pointed at me. So as I'm sitting in the holding cell in St. Louis County, I'm thinking to myself, I sure hope more evidence comes out on this case. Because there's some circumstantial evidence that says he did it. But surely there's some more definitive evidence that says he didn't do it. Now, by God's grace, the guys who had pushed the truck in the lake had prior records and their fingerprints were on the back of the truck which had not fully submerged in the lake and the officers were able to get their prints match it with them and they ended up getting everybody that did it and the guy even the guy and I still to this day don't know who did it but the guys who did it ended up saying yeah Rome was here earlier in the night but he wasn't part of this hallelujah and so I was completely absolved and exonerated it was awkward coming back from the police station to the family reunion and the graduation party. Everybody's like, okay, okay, all right. You grad, you're one day out of high school. Um, but, but the reality was this. I needed the hard evidence to come out to prove the truth, the reality of what happened. There was circumstantial evidence, but I needed clear and compelling evidence, right? When we say that we are followers of Jesus, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that we can point to. We go to church, we say that we're Christians, we put, we listen to the right music, 
we do the right thing, we're on the team, we serve, we give, we do the thing. But I want to know, what is the hard evidence? What is the physical evidence? What is the real, clear, and compelling evidence that we live a life under the Spirit? How do we know if we are operating under the Spirit? And how do we know if one another is operating under the Spirit? And the reality is this, the Scripture is explicitly clear about what constitutes the evidence that we live a life, that we are leading a life under the Spirit. Here's the evidence. Galatians 5.22 says this, the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the evidence of the Spirit, the symptom of the Spirit is, help me out somebody, the evidence, you can, you can present a lot of circumstantial evidence, but at, at, the, at, at the end of the day, the hard evidence is whether or not you love. This is life under the influence. Let me give you another scripture. First uh, John 4, 11. If we love one another, right? This is an if then. If we love one another, God lives in us. Right? This is the evidence that God lives in us. We love one another. If we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we, that we live in him and that he lives in us. Isn't that amazing? It says, it literally says, this is how you know. How do I know if I'm living a life under the Spirit? How do, how do I know if I'm living a life under the influence of the Holy Spirit? How do I know? Love. If I'm loving, that's evidence that I'm living under the Spirit. I'm going to give you another one. Because I, 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 I think there's still, you know, the jury's still out. There's still some skepticism here. John 13, 35. By this, everybody will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love... Come on, somebody, help me out. If you love one another, this is the definitive. This is the compelling evidence that tells us whether or not we are living a life under the Spirit. The question is simply this. Are we loving? Are we loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we loving our neighbor? Are we loving our friends? Are we loving our enemies? Are we loving those who despitefully use us? This is life under the Spirit. In fact, I'm going to give you uh, another one. This is just this. This is like in case anybody was still unclear. 1 Corinthians 13. This is a wedding scripture, but it's really not. It's really about life under the influence. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Look at that. Listen to this. Speaking with tongues of men and angels. That's my circumstantial evidence. See, look how spiritual I am. But if I have not love, I am nothing. Right? That's the real evidence. If I, I, I have become a sounding brass that clings. And though I give, though I have the gift of prophecy. And though I understand all mysteries. And though I understand all knowledge. Right? Mysteries, knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can move mountains. But I, I don't have love. I'm nothing. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but what's the real evidence? Love. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I'm a giver, I'm generous. And though I give my body to be burned, I'll, I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'm a martyr for you, Jesus. But I don't have love, it profits me nothing. The evidence is love. And then it says this, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
This is my one premise that I want to just talk about for a few minutes. My one premise for this whole sermon. This is for all of us. Love is the evidence. Love is the evidence. You can sift through all the, 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 the beer bottles and the cigarette butts in the parking lot. You can find somebody's name on a placard. But what's the real evidence? Let's get down to the real evidence. Love is the real evidence of whether or not we are leading a life under the Spirit. Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. And, and what he meant by that is, I can, look at a, I can look at an orange tree, and the only way I know this an orange tree is it produces oranges. If it produces oranges, then it's an orange tree. If it produces apples, it's an apple tree. If it produces grapefruit, it's a, it's a grapefruit tree, right? If I have love, I'm living under the Spirit. If I'm, li- if I'm living under the Spirit, I'm going to produce love. Love is going to pour out of me. That's what it's going to look like. Uh, so here's the question for us. If that's the evidence, love is the evidence, then what does the Bible tell us about love? Like, what does it mean? Is it a sentimental, affectionate feeling that we have? And what we learned right out of the gate is that love is an action, not an emotion. Love is an action, not an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's not a little chill that you get. Love is an action that you continue to exhibit. Over and over and over again. I'm a roller coaster guy. I like roller coasters. The reason I like roller coasters, if I go to Six Flags, I take my kids on the roller coaster, is that it gives me a feeling. It's like a euphoric kind of feeling, right? You know, that's why anybody likes roller coasters. Is you're indoor, well, some people don't like roller coasters, but, but people who do like the feeling of the endorphins and the dopamine flowing through your, you know, and you're like, whoa, it's great, right? It's fun to have that feeling, but if I spent my life at Six Flags, trying to recreate that feeling, that would be a wasted life, right? Because what I'm doing is I'm trying to get a feeling. I'm trying to experience an emotion. I'm trying to experience a thrill. I'm trying to get a chill down my spine. And, and, and that's fine, but that's not the real thing, right? Love is not an emotion that you feel. Love is an action that you exhibit day after day after day. In fact, Jesus put it like this to his disciples. Notice the way he puts this. John 13, 34. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. Now, what does he not say? He does not say, feel love for one another. It was like when my, when my dad, when, when we were being raised, my dad would say, we respect each other. And I kind of mistook that when I was young to, to mean we feel respect for each other. And there were times that I did not feel respect for other members of my family. And I'm sure there were times that they did not feel respect for me. But he wasn't saying feel respect. He was saying respect. Show respect. Jesus here is saying, this is a command. I'm commanding you to do something. I can't command you to feel something. I can command you to an action. I can't command you to an emotion. He says, love one another as I, as I love you. So you must love one another. This was an active uh, uh, expression that Jesus commands us, commanded his disciples, and commands us to exhibit at all times. Jesus loved those who hated him. While Jesus was being spit upon and scorned and whipped and beaten and a crown of thorns, he was loving his oppressors. 
He was loving those who hated him. He was loving those who harmed him. He was exhibiting this, what, what the scripture calls an agape love. It's this love that is not contingent and not qualified. It's not conditional. It's a love that you pour out to other people, whether or not you receive anything back. Dr. King put it like this, and this is an amazing, uh, from a speech he did in 1957. He said it would be nonsense to urge men to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. That'd be nonsense. When we speak of loving those who oppose us, we refer to, he said, a love which is expressed in the Greek word agape. Agape means nothing sentimental or affectionate. It means redeeming goodwill for all men. Redeeming, this is, you are seeking to redeem others through the power of love. An overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. When we love on the agape level, he said, we love men not because we like them. You know, you got to love people you don't like. Amen. You got to, I need a better, you got to love people you don't like. You know, you can dislike someone and love them at the same time. They can just grate up on your last nerve. But God says, love that person. And God is saying, I want you to, I, I, God's working on me on this. He's working on me. Because there's some people that, that, let's just keep going here, what Dr. King said. Uh, he said, <laughs> he said, not because their attitudes and ways appeal to us, but because God loves them. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. King. Here we rise to the position of loving the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. Jesus is saying to us today as a church, and if this is the only thing we ever get, love everybody. Love them. Love them. Love your family. Love your friends. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Love your political opponents. Love every single person who is... Uh, love every single person. Because every single person is a child of God. And God says, I want you to love them. How do I know if I'm loving somebody? Right? Because I can still say it. I can say, okay, I love you. Right? Easy things to say. And I, and I say it a lot. Like I say it to my kids. I say it to a lot of, I say it to everybody. Love you. Sometimes it surprises people. I go, hey man, love you. Hey, love you sis. Right? And people are like, oh, it's a little strong, but okay. You know, and they, eventually they, they, but, but it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to exhibit it. So how do we know if we're actually doing it? Well, here's what it looks like. Back to first Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Okay. This is how you know, am I loving somebody? Am, am I being patient with them? Am I being impatient? That's not loving. Am I being patient? That's loving. Love is kind. Am I being kind? Love does not envy. Am I wanting what they have? That's not love. It does not boast. It is not proud. In other words, it doesn't puff up. It doesn't walk around showing itself off. It does not dishonor others. You will never hear me dishonor anybody from this pulpit. Ever. Anybody. If I do, turn me off. I'm, I'm not, that's not love. We do, not, we do not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. I'm not trying to get something. That's not love. Uh, it's not easily angered. It doesn't have a short fuse. It has a long fuse. Uh, it keeps no record of wrongs. Come on, list people. And then you did this, remember, and then you said that. And then the other time, do you remember the time? And then one other time, there was something that you said, right? Right? You had a look in your eye, and I, I knew what that meant, right? I, I don't keep a record of wrongs. Um... No record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It doesn't love evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects. 
that always trusts, that always hopes, that always perseveres. Look at this. Love never fails. This is what it's about, y'all. This is what it is about. This is what life under the influence of the Holy Spirit is all about. If we do this, let me just tell you, if we do this as a church community, if we just keep leaning into love, the, the buildings, when, when the restrictions lift, the buildings will not hold us. Because people who radically, fundamentally, wildly disagree with us will pour in the door because they are experiencing the love of God from us. The agape love that pours out of us. That's what it looks like to love. Love is the evidence. Now here's the question that I have. I'm always like trying to figure out, okay, this is good and this is true. How do I get there? Right? Because I don't, I'm not there. I'm just not there. I'm working on it, but I'm not there. Okay, let me give you a little bit of a release valve, all right? Ready? Love is a process. It's not a point. Love is a process. It's a process. There's a process to this. Uh, several years ago, several years ago, my wife and I ran the Nashville Marathon. Nashville Marathon, several years ago. Um, and just, just to be clear, when I say we ran the Nashville Marathon, I ran the Nashville Marathon. Okay, she ran the half. Okay, I just, I just want that to be half. Good, it's good, it's good, it's strong, it's strong. <laughs> um, so we ran the half and the full Na Nashville Marathon, and and Nashville, I didn't realize this, but it's very hilly, and so when you are running, I don't know if you've ever been running and you think you're almost to the top of the hill, and then you kind of get to what you think is the apex of the hill, and then you go. Ah, that wasn't the top of the hill. <laughs> There's a lot more to go. And then you run and then you think you're there again. And that's not it. That's what happened at the Nashville Marathon. Is every time I thought I was at the top of the hill, uh, there was more to go. Right? And every time I thought, what mile marker are we on, for goodness sake? It wasn't as far as I thought. It's a process. Love is a process, not a point. You aren't there yet. I'm not there yet. But it's a process. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Love is something that we exercise over and over. Love is something that we do over and over again. It's not, you're not going to say, done, love, done. There's a finish line, but the finish line's way off. And let me just be real. None of us are close to it, right? Mother Rage has crossed the finish line. But, 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 but the rest of us, we got a long way to go. We got a long track ahead of us to grow into what this looks like to love. To love with that agape love. In fact, when, when I did not realize this, when I started studying for this sermon, I found all these scriptures that I did not, I hadn't really thought of them in this light. Let me read you a few. First Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow. It, so th there's this idea that yes, you're loving, yeah, but let's keep going further. It's a process. Let's keep growing in this. May, may, it, may it overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Philippians 1.9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So it's, again, this idea that like love is a process. This is growing. This is a process for us. We got to keep growing in this thing. Uh, um, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you because the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. All of these scriptures keep saying, no, no, love, love's a process. Love is a process. We're growing in this. We're growing in this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. 
You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. The scriptures are saying, come on, let's keep pushing towards them. The, the paradoxical reality about spiritual growth is that the more you grow spiritually, the more growth you realize there is in front of you. Let me say that again. The more spiritually mature you are, the more you realize that you've got a long way to go. If you think that you are there, right? If you think you've made it, if you feel like you've arrived spiritually, I got my stuff together. Let me just tell you, you are an infant. Because even the Apostle Paul says, I, I have not apprehended. I have not made it. I know that. Here, however, forgetting those things which are behind and looking forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the prize for the calling of the high God uh, in Christ Jesus. I'm going to keep stretching. I'm going to keep growing. God's calling us, church. As a church family, individually and as a church family, let's grow in our love. Let's expand our love. I'm preaching to myself today. That's good preaching, Brent. You just keep preaching, brother. That's some solid. I, I really, brother, that's some solid. feel like God is calling me to a person who loves. A, you know, I can be. <laughs> I can, you know, if somebody hits me the wrong way, it just makes me mad. I was a good litigator. I was a good lawyer. Because if somebody on the other side came at me, I could just come right back at them. I was good at that. But I'm not a lawyer anymore. I'm a pastor now. Jesus, Lord, help us. We got to grow in love. Uh, I want to invite you to step two today, uh, where you can grow in love and join our dream team. Um, I'll be leading that right after this session. We invite all of you to come. Um, maybe I'll give the teaching to somebody else. And I'll sit in the class this Sunday. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so, so love is a process, right? It's an action. It's something that we do. It's not just something we feel. It's a process. It's something that we're developing. We're, we're growing into it, right? And we're leaning into it. And I think for maybe a lot of us, we can kind of hit that wall of like, okay, but how do I, how, like, how do I get there? Because I can't generate it in myself. I can't just create love in my own heart, right? I just can't make it happen. You know what I mean? Like I can't just build the fire of love in my own heart and then it just kind of pours out. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. Love is a gift that must be received before it can be given. Love is a gift that, first of all, it's a gift. That means you can't create it. It's given to you. And you can't give it unless you've received it. You have to experience the love of God in order to express the love of God. You can't exhibit the love of God unless you've received the love of God. I have four kids. All four of my kids have a bank account at Bank of America. All four children. 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 7-year-old, 5-year-old. All four of them have a bank account. All four of my children, from their little bank accounts, they give... Right? They tithe. You can ask Mimi. She's our finance director. She gets their little checks every month. They tithe a tenth of their income to God through One Family Church. They save at least 10%. My kids do. And we're not talking a high dollar here, okay? We're talking small digits. Three digits with a point after the first one. All right? They save 10%. And then they spend the rest. Guess where that money comes from? That money comes from me and Rebecca. 
that money flows from my account to their account because they have chores. They got to do their chores. And if they do the chores, then the can then my money goes into their account. And then what they do with their account is they give some away and then they save some and then they spend some. And that's how we're organized, right? They would not have the ability to give any away if my account was not set to send money to their account and their account was not set to receive money from my account, right? The only reason they can give is because they receive. And when they receive, now they can give. Today, somebody needs to open the bank account of love in your heart and receive what God has to give you. Because he's not holding back on love for you. He's got love to pour into you. Now, the only thing that prohibits you from experiencing the love of God is you have not opened the account. You have not opened the account to receive the automatic transfer. Okay, come on, that'll work. The automatic transfer that will pour from his account into your account. And only after you open that account and begin to receive what he has to transfer to you, then you can begin to transfer it out because it's overflowing. It's an abundant flow that comes from an, a, a, an eternal source. Here's what Jesus said. I'm gonna, this is my last scripture. It says this, 1 John 4, 10, 11. This is love. What's love, John? Not that we loved God, ready? But that he loved us. That's where it starts. It starts with the account being poured into your account. His love being poured into you. But that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loved you while you were yet sinners. He loved you. Dear friends, since God loved us... Since that happened, since our account is full, we ought also to love one another. The, the reason we can pour it out is because it's coming in. The reason we can be generous and kind with people who are not generous or kind to us is because our Heavenly Father has been generous and kind to us. He's sacrificed. We didn't deserve it. By the way, we don't have to do chores to get his love. That's the difference. An earthly father says, you got to do your chores. Then I'm going to give you the money. Okay? The heavenly father says, you don't have to do any chores. You'll want to do chores because you'll just be so happy. But I'm not going to make you do any chores to get my love. I'm just going to give it to you. Right? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? His job is to try to get in. Your job is to open the door. That's it. You don't have to do the work to get him to come and knock on the door. He's already knocking. Let me in. I got love. I got nothing but love for you. I got pure love for you. I just want to pour it into you. And when we receive that and open our lives to receiving that, then, then we can pour it out. Then we can pour it out. Here's what I want us to do as we close. I want each and every one of us, and everybody at Shaw, please do this with us. Everybody at home, everybody, not if you're driving, but everybody that can. We're going to pray together. I want to ask you to do something. I want you to put your hand on your heart. Just put your hand on your heart. And what we're going to do is we're going to just pray together and ask that the Holy Spirit would fill us with the love of God. That we would open our own personal spiritual love account and allow our heavenly father who desperately wants to love us 
He desperately wants to show us how much we are loved. He wants to pour that into us. Because when that happens, then we begin to love him. Guess what else happens? We begin to love ourselves. See, there's a, there's a thing there, guys. I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to. And at the end of the day, the diagnosis is they don't love themselves. They don't love themselves. Why are they doing destructive things? They don't love themselves. Why are they harming themselves? enough? They don't love themselves. Why do they not love themselves? Because they haven't opened up and received the love of God yet. They're still thinking they got to earn it, deserve it, and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Just open the door, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it everywhere. We're going to pray together and ask for the love of God to come in. As we do that, worship team, you can come up. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we ask today that that we would uh, drop our our barriers and that we would drop the walls that keep us, that prohibit us from experiencing your love. We pray, Lord God, that we would get over ourselves, that we would get over our pride where we say we don't need you. We know that's not true. I pray that we would get over our shame and our condemnation that says we don't deserve you, which is true, but doesn't matter. We don't deserve you, but that doesn't matter because you loved us while we were still sinners. I pray, Lord God, we would get over ourselves and we would drop everything that prevents us from experiencing an outpouring of your love into our hearts so that it would fill up and spill over. So that we would experience a depth of love, your love in our hearts that is so great that we can't contain it. That it pours over onto ourselves and we begin to love ourselves as you have loved us. And that we begin to love other people the way that you love other people. We pray, Lord God, that today we would love our friends and family. We pray that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that we would love our neighbors. We pray that we would love strangers who we don't even know. We pray that we would even begin to love those who are opposed to us. And that we would just love them. And by doing so, we would be modeling the kind of love that you showed us. When you sent your son to die on a cross for us. We do bow our knee before you. And we do confess with our mouth that we love you. And that you are Lord and Savior the glory of God the Father. Fill our hearts, both individually and collectively, as a church, online, at Shaw, at U-City, everywhere, anybody who's watching, fill our hearts, we pray, with love. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.